find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, y'all, yens and yens. Welcome to the Appalachian Crime Trail podcast. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Nikki. And it is late (laughs) when we're recording, so this should be fun. (laughs) So today... I wanted to give an update on the Vallow case because I found out more information. Oh I saw something today and I was just like, what? There's so much. I just am kind of like, this is a little update, not much. Yeah. But I wanted to clarify because last week we talked. So this is um, the two missing kids, JJ and... Taylee. Taylee, I'm sorry. Yes, Taylee Vallow are missing. They've been missing since September and no one knows where they are. We talked about it more, but definitely check it out. It they were from Idaho. Mm-hmm. So it's not Appalachian related, but it's bizarre. And two things. One is I think you said that so the guy who married Lori Vallow, mm-hmm. Chad Daybell, his wife had died the year before. So I think you said that, but he she actually died October nineteenth. And yeah, then they got married in November. That after the fact. Yeah. So I wanted to clarify that. So Tammy Daybell was married to Chad Daybell. And so Lori's husband had been killed in July by her brother. Mm -hmm. And then Tammy died. And when they initially did the autopsy, they said it was just natural causes. Mm -hmm. But then after everything started to come out, they um, exhumed her body and were redoing a, like, report on her. Mm -hmm. But I haven't, I couldn't see anything on the articles I was looking at saying what her cause of death was. But then they got married in November. Yeah, it was literally it's, like two weeks after. Whenever I was listening to Mile Higher podcast, I was telling you about. Yeah, they said that in there, and I of course was listening to it after we had released yeah. the last episode, and I was like, "Holy crap, balls! What? It's crazy." Well, and then JJ's grandparents actually filed for temporary guardianship of him. I think in hopes that if he is alive, and if mom just doesn't want to take care of him, that they, he would turn up. But mm-hmm. nothing's happened there. His grandparents are the one that are doing all the work, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, definitely um, fronting all this work. Well, every, they keep everyone keeps dying, so mm-hmm. they don't have many people left that no. would fight for him. And then I also found out, and I want to watch it. Dateline did an episode that came out on Valentine's Day. It's a two-hour special oh. about it. So it just came out less than a week ago. It came out when this comes out. It'll be a week. So yeah. I'm hoping I can find it on YouTube or something, mm-hmm. maybe on the like true crime YouTube pages that they yeah. put dateline stuff on. That's one thing I wanted to bring up. Another thing in regards to that case, I saw an article probably about an hour and a half before you got here this evening. And apparently, oh what's her face? Was what's her name? Lori. Lori. So apparently she had told one of her friends that the kids were safe but she wasn't gonna give up any info on it. And she also told her friend that she Knew that this was just going to blow over and she wasn't going to say anything because she knows it's going to blow over. The media wouldn't get a hold of it. Now, I guess this was before it, like, went into this big right. shitstorm of coverage. Well, they didn't release the information Excuse super me. publicly until... <clears throat> I think I just followed too many true crime pages. Because I'm just... Yeah. They, they've they just really... They released it and were like, we have a plea. Please help us find these kids. Yeah. And I just... Yeah, there's a lot to it that there frustrates is. me. It, so, in Appalachian news... There's actually a search going on for a missing hiker um, in Dawson County, Georgia. Eddie Nooncaster began a thru-hike of the Appalachian Trail on February 14th on Valentine's Day. Apparently, he has since become disoriented and may be suffering from a medical emergency. So, he left out, from my understanding, he left out from Springer Mountain in Georgia at the southern terminus of of the AT. Gosh. 
and it's believed that he is on or near the AT approach trail somewhere in Dawson County. But of course, it is possible that he's wandered off the trail and into the surrounding national forest or park property. The other day, his pack and his supplies were found, um, but they still don't have any sign of him. And that was on February 17th they found those. So they're using where they found his pack and stuff to try to narrow down their search area. But so far, they don't have anything. So hopefully, you know, for our listeners in Georgia, because I know that we do have a few, um, or if you're hiking the AT and you happen to be listening to us, just keep an eye out for him. Um, And if you do see any signs of him, contact the Dawson County Sheriff's Department. Like if you see signs where you think he may have been, that way they can get a team out, get searched in that area immediately. But like I said, they do think he might be on an approach trail or somewhere in that area of the National Forest. So hopefully he's found safe and they can get him home, especially if he's got some kind of medical emergency coming going yeah. on. I know that he is in the south right now starting, but the temperature still down in Georgia right now can dip down into like right. the 30s at night. So especially if he doesn't have his gear with him, that's really scary. Um, so let's hope and pray that he gets found safe and sound. I have one other thing. I don't know how many you had today, but my thing, I've been binging this Netflix show called I Am a Killer. <coughs> have you watched it? No. So it's a docuseries, uh-huh. and it popped up in my, rec- my recommended. Oh, yeah. I saw it in my recommended the mm-hmm. other day. I just realized that because didn't they just release a new season or I something? I think so. I don't know. I didn't look into when they started it, but I just have been watching it um, at home. Mm-hmm. And basically what they do is they interview murderers and they could be on or off death row. And I've only watched one so far with a female killer, mm-hmm. but the rest of them have been men. But I think there's I think there's one, the next one that I want to watch, because I fell asleep, so it, was, it played. I think the next one I'm going to watch has a another woman. But they interview the murderer. And then... They interview, like, the family of the victim or the family of the perpetrator and law enforcement, depending on the case. And so they'll interview them. So then you see that side of the story. They go back and they'll show some of those people the clips of what the murderer had said Mm -hmm. and get their opinion on it. And then about 90 days later, and I think it's because of interviewing and visitation laws within, like, the... um, the detention centers and prisons that they go back and they show audio clips to the murder of what mm-hmm. people have said and get their opinion on that. And it's been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Some of it, you know, there was actually a guy on there. He's in Ohio, but they're originally from Clay County. Oh, wow. And, you know, some of them have had a lot of abuse. Mm-hmm. Some of them haven't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one thing we do with this podcast is we do try to talk as much as possible about the victims, but it's hard because it is that yeah. victim's no longer here most of the time, and then the perpetrator gets glorified in yeah. some way, and it's hard to talk about the case, but without talking about, obviously, the perpetrator, but at the same time, like, I don't know, it's just an interesting show, and I think it's interesting to get into their minds and, and heads and also kind of see the crimes from their perspective. Yeah. And then watch footage of their, like, police interviews. Yeah. And see them contradict or things like that. So, I don't know. 
I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. They're only like 45 minute episodes. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, they're pretty um, interesting, and they follow the same structure pretty much every episode. Oh, I lied. There's been two female killers. Ooh. The first one I watched, there was a younger one, and then there was an old lady who had shot her husband. And I have thoughts, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So <laughs> Spoilers. maybe eventually I'll pull a Karen and do like, not I survived, but I'll do I am a killer. Ooh, and that is a good idea. Look up those, because there's a couple on there that I really want to look into and kind of figure out. Um, I've got one more news related article. What did that crime. say? Oh, hold on. So this came across uh, my Facebook feed and I was like, wait, what? So the title is... Human remains found in jars under Florida home. Mm. Hear me out. I know you don't like the gross stuff. So this is an article from WTOC 11, which is a uh, local news station in Gainesville, Florida. Or around oh, the Gainesville it's Florida. Area. Yeah, right. it's Florida. There um, you go. So Gainesville police are investigating jars of preserved human remains found in the crawl space of a house in northwest Gainesville's Brywood neighborhood. Um, some of the jars date as far back as the 1960s, and they contain human tongues. So, the remains were discovered during an inspection of the house's foundation, and the home was previously owned by Dr. Ronald A. Boffman, and he is a former University of Florida researcher and current professor emeritus who published studies in the 1970s and 80s. Did he, like, take the tongues off of a cadaver? Let me get to that. So, authorities said that they're looking into the possibility that the human remains are actually related to work that Boffman may have done and brought home, and then he ended up storing under the house's floorboards. Which is still not okay. But... No! Like, <laughs> don't bring your work home with you, dude. <laughs> that's that's one of those definitely don't bring your work home with no. you. No! So, but yeah, that's, that's, that's... Leave it to Florida. <laughs> Sorry, hate to hate on another state, but whoa. <laughs> well, this is our 20th episode. <laughs> so I remember sending a statistic to Nikki when we first started that it, I saw that, I don't even know if this is a true statistic, but on average, most podcasts don't make it past the seventh episode. Uh-huh. And so when we did, we were excited. Yeah. And then I think we've just kind of gotten to the flow of things, and now we're on, like, episode 20. And I, it's not even, I mean, people are listening, but I think it's just more our sheer will of, like, we want to do this <laughs> and put these out there. So thanks for, yeah. Like, that's amazing. I never would have thought we would have, that was not even in my mind when we first, like, met yeah. And decided to do a podcast that we would do 20 Just think, episodes. this all started in a little coffee shop. Actually, this all started thanks to a Facebook, Facebook group that we met. Mount Murderinos! And Miss Kirsten said one day, she was like, hey, would anybody be interested in like maybe doing a podcast? And me, the introvert, was like, sure, I'd be interested. Why not? And I think you're also one of the only people in that group that live around here, though, too. I think that I think there's two more now. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. We have to meet them. Hey, uh, if you listen, give us a shout. We'd like to meet you. (laughs) Yeah. If you're from West Virginia, join the Mountain Murder, you know's Facebook group. It was started as like a subgroup for My Favorite Murder. Yeah. But now it's just we post murder articles. (laughs) (laughs) What? Well, you know. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, thanks for listening. Yay. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Let's do stories now. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, so this week I decided to take a break on y'all since, you know, I disgusting kind case of last like time. hit you upside the head with that horrific case in the last episode, which I think I'm still having like nightmares about. Anyways, no, so being the history nerd that I am, I decided to go for like an old crime. And this is one that actually took place here in Greenberg County. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from Civil War times, and this is the hanging of da- David Cray. I don't know this story. Oh, so David S. Cray was born, and it's p- pronounced Cray, but it's spelled C R E I G H. So if you want to look up anything on him, David S. Cray was born May first, eighteen o nine, in Ireland. Family immigrated to Greenberg County in then Virginia in the eighteen tens where his father opened a popular mercantile company. So they did, it was like a good store is what it was, essentially, if you're not familiar with the term. In 1833, he married Emily Arbuckle, who was a daughter of Captain Charles Arbuckle here in Lewisburg. And Arbuckle was famous in this area for being one of the first settlers of Greenberg County and of Lewisburg. I was going to say, I love when I read these stories because then I see, like, surnames that I know. Yeah, it's so crazy. So, David and his wife had 11 children total. Birth control, man. Yeah, you know, birth control back in the 1830s. Wait, did they all live, though? Yes. All 11 lived. What? So, in 1834, Cray had a house built just three miles south of Lewisburg and it was known as Montesina or Boone Farm. I, I wonder if any of his kids went to the Lewisburg Academy that was uh, founded yes. and opened in 1812. What? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he actually had a son or two of his sons. Or maybe it was three. Either two or three sons actually went to the Lewisburg Academy. I was going to say, it was one of the first co-educational institutions, yeah. too. I know way too much and about And then this. they went to the Greenberg Military School yeah. also. Makes sense. Um, so... As I said, he and his wife had 11 children in no, 1834. No, that wouldn't make sense. What? They wouldn't be able to go to GMS. GMS didn't start till the early 1900s. Oh, okay. Never mind. I was thinking somebody else then. Yeah. Pay no attention to that. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It was known as Montesina and Boom Farm. Um, it was at this home and the over 100 acres that was a part of the property. I think it's about 128 acres, if I remember correctly, that... Cray ended up leaving the mercantile business that his father had established, and he ended up devoting himself to a career in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Little side fact, Green, the Greenberg Valley in this area, like Lewisburg, Rennick, and all that, um, it's a huge, like a super long, wide valley, and there are tons and tons of big old farms here. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those farms had slaves too. So... Cray hoped to lead a quieter life, but his popularity amongst his fellow members led him to holding several positions within the community. In 1838, he was appointed to the county court as magistrate, and in 1850, when their constitution passed, like the county's mm-hmm. constitution passed, he was formally elected into the position and would continue to be reelected into the position um, up until his death. He was also appointed bank director at one point and was a church elder at the Old Stone Presbyterian Church in Lewisburg. So, during the Civil War, Greenberg County was more of a southern sympathizing county. In 1864, this would be complicated by the fact that the year previous, 1863, 
The state of West Virginia was formed as a result of Virginia wanting to secede from the Union. Secede, not succeed. Dear God. <laughs> Dr. Berkey, if you're listening, I said it correctly. Secede. He always used to harp on us about I mean, secession and succession. And yeah. Oh, boy. Fair. Um, anyways, so as a county with strong secessionist sentiments that found itself caught up in the process of creating a new union estate, Greenberg County residents feared what might become of them under a union occupation. From the outset of the war, they begged for assistance and protection from both the Commonwealth of Virginia and the Confederate governments, but never received what they felt that they needed. After an initial period of interest from Richmond, yeah, the state capital of Virginia, and it was actually the capital of the Confederacy, which even saw the assignment of Robert E. Lee to govern the county. Mm-hmm. Greenberg County, as well as the entire northwest region of Virginia that became West Virginia, became kind of a backwater to the governments on both sides. As a result, the people would see themselves beset by union raiding and eventually union occupation. So, for much of the war, Greenberg County and large portions of West Virginia were home to guerrillas, also known as bushwhackers. So, guerrillas and bushwhackers are, they don't, how you would define that is, if you're in guerrilla warfare, you're not playing by the regular rules of warfare, I guess you would say. Um, Guerrilla warfare uses a lot of ambush tactics, kind of sneak attacks, all that good stuff. So, some of these men were individuals who actually were fighting for the Confederate cause, but many, if not most, were nothing more than, like, criminals who used the facade of an ongoing war to their advantage. Some of these partisan units were formally recognized by the Confederate military, but even most of those were eventually shut down because of their, like, lawless behavior. So, meanwhile, the federal reaction, the Union reaction to these elements was harsh and uncompromising. As Union forces occupied Greenmark County after the Droop Mountain Campaign, the inhabitants found themselves subject to military law and trial by court-martial. So, back to David Cray. So, as I stated, there were a lot of families that in this area had slaves. David Cray and his family were amongst those. And like many Virginians before the war, he was also a political conservative. Um, he was opposed to secession and war, though. Um, but he once Virginia decided to secede, he was supportive of that decision as a, I guess, individual. Um, and as a result, his three oldest sons would actually enlist in the 14th Virginia Cavalry and fight for the Confederacy. In the meantime, as the war raged on, Cray and his family worked their land and awaited their son's return home. So, November 6, 1863, the Battle of Droop Mountain occurred in Pocahontas County, just north of Lewisburg. Union troops won this battle and, as a result, followed Confederate troops south as they made their retreat through Greenberg County. Once they reached Lewisburg, though, Union forces occupied the town because they were running low on supplies it was beginning of November um, with the Battle of Dream Mountain. They faced, like, I think they had a pretty heavy snow when the battle occurred, so they were low on supplies, and they had a lot of sick men from being out in the weather and all that. So, on the night of November 8th, 1863, so two nights after the battle, Cray was visiting the nearby home of a friend, John Dunn. 
As the two men were chatting, a Union cavalryman entered the house without knocking and demanded that Dunn tell him where his horses might be. Dunn tried to be kind of evasive about it, so the soldiers started to search the house. Concerned that this man would visit his home next, Cray actually left and hurried on home. Once he arrived at his home, he told Emily, um, his wife, that a soldier was searching the Dunn home looking for things to steal and that he would likely be coming to their home shortly. He urged his wife to remain calm while he went to a nearby home of another friend, Mr. Arbuckle, which, by the way, this is actually a relative, too. Mm -hmm. And Arbuckle's wife was actually at Cray's home helping tend to his sick daughter, Elizabeth. So he told his wife that he wanted to see if he might borrow a pistol from Arbuckle in case this soldier came to ransack them. When Cray returned home, as he entered the front door, he heard raised voices upstairs and quickly realized that the soldier had indeed come to his house. As the man was rummaging through his belongings, Cray pulled the pistol and demanded that he leave. However, he accidentally discharged the pistol, but it missed and hit the wall. The soldier then pulled his revolver out and a struggle ensued. Emily, which, like I said, is David's wife, jumped in and helped aim the pistol towards the soldiers. They all struggled to control it. It went off, and the soldier was hit. The wounded soldier continued to struggle. The revolver of the soldiers was now on the floor, and Mrs. Cray picked it up, pointed it, and squeezed off another round at the soldier. As the soldier was struggling, Mr. Cray dumped him near the front door of the home. The soldier's hand started to twitch, even though the guy was down, and... Mm -hmm completely like incapacitated at that point so mr cray actually grabbed an axe and crushed the soldier's skull so knowing that he wouldn't receive a fair trial because hey you just killed a union soldier and guess what the unions occupy in your county um with the help of one of his sons and an irish farmhand they ended up dumping the soldier's body down a nearby abandoned well about a three quarters of a mile away from the home so, through the winter of 1863 and the spring of 1864, no one came looking for the soldier. However, there had been whisperings in the area of what had happened at the Cray home, but so far no one had actually come in regards to the murder. Mm -hmm. So, on May 15, 1864, a slave entered the camp of the 1st West Virginia Cavalry and told the commander, General David Hunter, that he had discovered the body of a soldier in a nearby well. Captain Howe, who was an officer in the regiment, was ordered to accompany the slave back to the well, along with a detachment of men to investigate what was reported. So, Howe did so, and as he and the slave entered the well, he, he found a decomposing body dressed in a Union uniform. Mm. The body was too far gone to be removed, so it was left there, and Howe returned to camp to report on his findings. Due to the well-being on David Cray's property, he was immediately arrested and taken to Bungers Mill, which is in nearby Monroe County, um, for a trial by court-martial. So the court convened on June 2nd with five Union officers chosen to pass judgment on David Cray. And mind you, so they're doing a court-martial on a regular citizen. Right. So take with that what you will. The formal charge was murder, and the specification stated that Cray murdered an unknown Union soldier with an axe or other weapon at his residence on November 8, 1863. So Cray actually entered a plea of not guilty to the charge and guilty to the specification. What? I don't. That's what didn't make sense to me because I don't. I guess they did 
court proceedings a little different back then. So there were two witnesses for the prosecution that were called, Captain Ricker and Assistant Inspector. Ricker or Rucker? Ricker. Okay. Yeah. I know Rucker was one of, he was the defense in um, the Zona Heaster shoe trial, so that's why I asked. Oh, nice. Uh, No, this was, well, that's what it said was Ricker. Okay. No, I was just curious. Yeah. So... Two witnesses for the prosecution were called Captain Ricker, who was an assistant inspector general who had spoken with Cray about the incident after his arrest, and Captain Howe. One witness was called for the defense, John Dunn, to whom Cray had actually confided to about the events of November 8th. Finally, once the prosecution finished their side, Cray was allowed to present his own story, and he did so with complete honesty. So he told them... From start to finish, exactly everything that happened. Like, he didn't hold anything back. Um, He did this in hopes that the court would see him as a man protecting his home. Mm -hmm. When he was finished, the court did not ask him one single question. They didn't challenge his statements. Or they didn't cross-examine him in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Instead, they closed the court so that they might deliberate the findings and reach a verdict. And a verdict was reached within a couple of hours. David Cray was found guilty of both the charge and the specification. So he was found guilty of murder and the specification on how he committed or whatever. Mm -hmm. Despite what should have been mitigating circumstances, they sentenced him to be hung with a sign around his neck stating that he was a murderer of a Union soldier and that his home was to be burned to the ground. So Montesino was supposed to be burned to the ground. So the next day, Union forces actually began withdrawing from Greenberg County to work on an advancement on Lynchburg, Virginia, and they took Cray with them. On June 9th, Generals Averill and Crook, and by the way, General Averill led the battle for the Union at uh, the Battle of Droop Mountain, approved the court's findings and forwarded them on to General Hunter for review and final approval. Hunter approved the findings and sent Averill orders to execute the sentence immediately. Averill and his brigade were on the march when the orders arrived. He promptly halted near Brownsburg, Virginia at the home of Reverend James Morrison. Cray was taken inside and told that he was to be hung right then and there. However, General Averill had given orders that, despite Hunter's approval of the court's recommendations on sentencing, the Cray home was not to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Craig was given the evening to make peace and to write a final letter on to his wife, Emily. So the next morning, he was taken to a nearby tree to be hanged, but no one on Averill's staff wanted to actually do the job. They stated to a local man that they had not enlisted to be executioners, but they had also actually come to like and respect David Cray. So finally, a 19-year-old private in the Union Army was ordered to carry out the execution, mm-hmm. which he did with great re- reluctance. Um, A Union Army chaplain who was present at the hanging later said that of the 300 men who witnessed the execution, there was not a single dry eye there. So despite Hunter's orders that Cray's body remain hanging as an example to others, the Morrisons, the family whose home this took place at, unfortunately, lowered his body as soon as the federal troops departed and buried it quickly in a blanket Six days later, David Cray's son, Cyrus, arrived. He found a coffin, and he ended up reburying his father in a nearby church 
churchyard. It remained there until a month later when Cyrus returned and Heather remains taken to Greenberg County. Um, and David Cray is still buried there. And he rests along his side beside his wife, Emily. So his grave is actually in the Old Stone Cemetery. Oh, really? Yeah. And Emily sits right next to him. And then what is it? There's something on the stone itself. I can't remember. But they talk about how he was trying to protect his home and yada yada on the stone. But it's kind of a catch-22 because it's like you don't want to feel bad for him because he was sympathizing with the Confederacy. But at the same time, he was trying to, you know, keep his home safe. So it's like, ooh, this sucks. But... So I'm looking up his headstone on Find a Grave. It says, Sacred to the memory of David S. Cray died as a martyr in defense of his rights something in the performance of his duties as a husband and father born may 1st 1809 and glided that's not right probably it's just dad no it's a g oh something to his no just fate then june 11th 1864 fun so, yeah. Um, and fun fact, there is actually several books about this. There's a really good book. And there's an actual book that was published back in the 70s on this. Um, a local woman did on his story. Mm-hmm. Another really good one where I got some of my research from, and thank God it was available via ebooks on Google, um, is Greenbrier Pioneers in Their Homes. And it was by by Ruth Woods, and that was released back in the 70s also. And then another website that I use, scavengeology, sca- yeah, scavengeology.com, which, of course, I'll leave the link for. It's this guy that lives in Monroe County, and he does, like, archaeology mm-hmm. to an effect in Greenbrier and mm-hmm. counties, and he runs this website, and he talks about, like, old stories, and, like, he uh, bought a house out in Monroe County somewhere and has been doing, like, um, scavenging on it slash archaeology like he's digging up the ground and stuff and he's found it's a house from like the early 1700s so it's one of the earlier settlements in the area it's really cool it's a really good website and not only is there a book about David Crane his hanging there was a play done by GBT Greenbrier Martyr yep the Greenbrier Martyr um, but yeah, so that is the hanging of David Cray. There's your history lesson slash true crime lesson for the week, kids. You're welcome. <laughs> good, good, great. All right, my case today is the murder of Jimmy Michael. And I thought this was a much more high profile case than it is, apparently. It happened in a neighboring county to where I grew up. But I know that it was on Snapped and Married to Murder, which I don't know that show, but I found that out. Really? Yes. But. There was really no cohesive version of the story. Like, there's not a Wikipedia article on it when I was on Murderpedia, I think, or something. Like, they didn't have an article about this case, which Mm -hmm. I found odd. So I was like, oh, okay. So I, my sources are all over the place. It's a lot of news articles. But I still think it's an interesting case. And like I said, I know it because it happened in a neighboring county to where I grew up. And one of the girls I went to school with knew the perpetrator. So, yeah. James Andrew Michael, who also went by Jimmy, was born on February 20th, 1972, to Dennis and Ruth Michael. He's buried in Cumberland, Maryland, which is near Morgantown, Mm -hmm. but his 
what I found is he was a resident in Morgantown, so I'm not sure if he grew okay. up in Morgantown or if he grew up in Cumberland. Cumberland's probably like an hour from Morgantown, so mm. it's not, you go on 68 and just keep going north. Um, but he was first married to Stephanie Estelle, and they had two children together, James II and Gianna Catherine, which is all one word. Oh, wow. Yes. I'm going to guess Catholic, maybe? Probably. Um, <laughs> he also coached a peewee football team, and... Stephanie and Jimmy both worked at Ruby Memorial Hospital, which is a prominent level one trauma center hospital in Morgantown. It's basically mm-hmm. the hospital, if anything bad happens around there, that's the nearest hospital you go to because yeah. all the other hospitals aren't usually equipped for huge traumas yeah. like car accidents and stuff. So they worked at Ruby, which I'm just going to reference it as Ruby because that's yeah. what we call it. And this was where he met Michelle, who also went by Shelly, Goots. Angus. So Goots is her maiden name. Angus was her married name. Okay. And I don't want to talk much about her because most of the articles and everything like snapped and, and the murder, marriage, married to murder, those all pretty much talk about her. Okay. Because she was sensationalized by the headlines because she was a cheerleading coach and a former WVU head cheerleader. Oh, crap so that was a big reason i think why they ran and also you don't normally get a female killer i think i might have heard about this but i'm not sure it it happened in 2005 so it's not like old old or anything but anyway so a lot of people have this preconceived idea of who she was and when she wasn't feeling that ideal i think that's where people started to question her a lot now i'm Mm -hmm. not saying she didn't do what she did but i just want to throw that out there so Michelle and Jimmy started to flirt, and both their own marriages seemed to be falling apart. She was married and had two children with her first husband. So due to this, the two divorced their children's parents, and then they got married, and they moved into a house that was just a few minutes away from Ruby. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Jimmy decided to start a medical supply company while Michelle still worked at Ruby in the pediatric intensive care unit. While Michelle and Jimmy are married, Michelle is having an affair with an employee of Jimmy's medical supply company named Bobby Teets. <laughs> I'd, like to, sorry. I'd like to point out that when they got remarried, they were only 28. Damn. So they're young. Like, it's not like these are, like, people. Like, they're young. So they got remarried. And at some point, near the end before he's killed, mm-hmm. she's having an affair with a guy named Bobby Teets. So they, Sorry, every time you're going to say that guy's last name, I'm going to be like, Teets. That's like, such a common name up there. What? Yeah. T-E-E-T-S. I, yeah, like, Teets on a cow. Oh, I don't, see, I don't think it's... <laughs> That's where my mind I know lots too. of people with that name. I actually was, like, searching, trying to find them on Facebook and see if I knew them or had mutual yeah. friends. So, she was having an affair. They had had sex during a hotel stay in Chicago, and I think that's what they assume that started the affair, and then they had... Also, this was reported. This is the only reason I have this in here. They had had sex just a few days before Jimmy's murder in Michelle and Jimmy's bedroom with one of the kids sleeping next door. That's just dirty. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, you can have sex in your... I mean, obviously, if the kids are in the house and they're in their bedroom, like, that's... You know, married couples do that, but... It, I think the the kicker was that it was not with her husband and it was she was having an affair. Yeah, and, that's just messed yeah. up. <laughs> so, needless to say, that did not help her case when on November 28th, 2005, a fire was reported at the Michael residence on Killarney Drive around 10.30 a.m. Inside the house, they were able to stop the fire from spreading too bad. 
but they find the charred remains of Jimmy Michael in his bed. Now, the fire had started in the bedroom, and they just thought it was a standard, like, fire had started, Mm -hmm. death-related fire, and they had just stopped it from spreading too, too much. But after an autopsy of Jimmy, they realized that he had no smoke in his lungs, which meant that he died before the fire ever started. Instead, they found out that he had been injected with rocuronia, which is a paralytic drug that can be used during some surgeries. But when you use the drug, you need to put someone on oxygen. It's okay. You need to put someone on oxygen because they're paralyzed, so they can't breathe on their own. Mm-hmm. So, and I was talking to my mom about that's this. Terrifying. I know. Well, and that's, I, so I called her and I said, how do you say this drug? Or I text her. I just said, how do you say this drug? She's like, why are you looking up drugs? And I was like, it's for the podcast. She's like, okay. I'm experimenting, mother. Yeah. And then no. she. No. Oh, God, no. And no, then, not really, mom. And then she was like, oh, I thought it was this drug. And I was like, I don't know. I saw rocuronium. So then we learned how to say it over the phone. And we were talking about this case and all the drugs that he she could have used. Thanks, but, mom. But she was saying that. Basically, and a lot of articles said it, but my mom is works in the medical field, and she was saying that whoever did that did murder him and used that drug was very cruel because he would have been paralyzed and couldn't change anything, and then he was suffocating. Ugh. So it's a very slow and painful death if you're not going to put someone on oxygen. It just so happens that someone working at the pediatric ICU may have access to this drug. Hmm, wonder who... Yes. And he was only 33 when he was killed. Jeez. So at this point, Michelle became a significant person of interest because of her reaction at the fire. So she even called at around 1030 and was told there's a fire at your house. And she came and she was not sad or crying as others were around her. And we're much more aware, I think, now of how people grieve differently than we were in 2005. But they still found it really odd. Well, yeah. And they immediately looked at her as a person of interest. Mm. So while questioning Michelle, she lied to investigators over 100 times just about general things and over 50 times about her affair with Bobby. Yeesh. It wasn't until the trial in Charleston in July that Michelle's ex-husband testified that he had called his longtime friend, Police Lieutenant Kevin Clark of the Morgantown Police Department, mm-hmm. about a tip he had received from his sister, who used to work with Michael, uh, with Michelle. And the call suggested that Rocky Ronium was available to persons working at the pediatric ICU, the PICU. Uh. And that was potentially the cause of the death. I'm not sure where he got that tip from, or maybe he was just talking to his sister. And she was like, oh. Right. So, due to the crazy press, and I put in parentheses, hashtag small town life, (laughs) they moved her trial to Charleston, which is in Kanawha County, and it's about two and a half hours away from Morgantown. And at this point, they introduced evidence that had Michelle leaving Ruby for 20 minutes, roughly, the morning of the murder. And after six tests, which one article was talking about how it took them six tries to try to even replicate what they were trying to say happened with the fire. Uh-huh. And that should be a, a statement as to why that shouldn't be sound evidence yeah. because it took them a lot. They built replicas of the bedroom. Yeah. But they were able to show that it would have been possible for her to start the fire during the time that she left work, which was around 8, 10, and then let it smolder for two hours before it would start to engulf in flames mm-hmm. and someone would notice. They also suggested that she could have injected Jimmy with rocuronium before she left work that morning. Mm -hmm. So he would have already been dead by the time she came back 
and she left around, she got to work around six Mm -hmm. and then she started the fire to cover up her tracks to make sure he had passed away. Yeah. Now this was not necessarily a clear motive in my opinion, but it was suggested that she killed him for the $500,000 insurance policy, which when she was first questioned by police, she thought it was a lot of money. But then when she was questioned on the stand, she didn't think it was a lot of money. So a lot of these like contradictions were happening where she would say stuff on the stand and then they would show like video recording Mm -hmm. of her saying something completely different. And for a lot of the time, she actually tried to pin the murder on Stephanie, Jimmy's ex-wife. But Stephanie had an alibi because she was home with her newborn during the time that all of this would have needed to take place. Mm -hmm. And then there was one article that said, well, she's not totally accounted for. And she also worked um, in the hospital. So she is a respiratory therapist, so she could have had access to the drug. Mm -hmm. And Michelle was saying that Jimmy was being harassed by Stephanie. But from what it seemed like, it was just mostly like ex people not getting along and arguing because they have kids and they have to deal with each other. So that's kind of all of that evidence. But the Dominion Post, which is a big newspaper in Morgantown, had an article on July 18th, 2007 about the trial. Mm -hmm. And the way they describe Michelle kind of makes it clear to me that something was up. Because when I was talking to my mom about the case, I said I found it really odd that they never pursued other leads. They just hooked on to Michelle. Yeah. And they totally dismissed anything about Stephanie. But I'll, I'm going to read you, like, a bit from the article. Because it talks about the interactions that happened between Michelle when she was on the stand and the Montegalia County Assistant Prosecuting Attorney, Perry DeChristopher. So this is, this was all just copy and pasted from the Dominion Post because Mm -hmm. it's just them talking back and forth. So, uh, to Christopher ask, so you think that James Michael, Jimmy, killed himself? Not in my heart, Michelle responded. In your mind, to Christopher asked? I don't want to believe it, said Michelle, dressed in a black skirt suit with a light blue collared shirt underneath. She never broke down on the stand, nor did she cry. On occasion, she wiped her nose with a tissue. Michelle said she didn't think it was her job to figure out what happened, but did say that her husband was sad in the days leading up to the fire. De Christopher didn't seem to buy it. You're here to tell this jury that James Michael injected himself with rocuronium, De Christopher said. That's why you want this. That's what you want this jury to believe. No, I don't, Michelle said. De Christopher then turned her attention to the fire at the Michael home. Do you agree it was an arson? She asked Michelle. I don't know, Michelle answered. Do you believe it was an accident? For a long time I did, Michelle answered. De Christopher then asked Michelle if she believed the person who murdered her husband also was responsible for the fire. And then Michelle said, if that's what happened, yes. That's what got me. Mm -hmm. If that's what happened, yes. The way that she was like responding was just really weird to me. It just sounds like really smarmy. Well, okay. So, I, I put in, this is a random thing, but at one point during the trial, she actually gave a thumbs up to the press. Like, she was not acting the way that someone... I think I do remember hearing about yeah. this, and it was just, like, weird. I, I saw, like, a little snippet of it, and I was just like, bitch got some nerve. <laughs> so. Well, so, the West Virginia Record actually uh-huh. featured an article from one of the jurors' perspectives regarding oh. the case. And there were six men and six women on the jury, and it was really mm-hmm. pr- difficult to find people who hadn't been biased because yeah. they knew somebody. And I put it, I said, again, hashtag small town life. Like, yeah. that's just a very big problem, which is why sometimes people will take cases elsewhere in the state because yeah. of that. This juror, 
kept saying how even though there was evidence presented that contradicted what Michelle was saying on the stand, it really seemed that, quote, Michelle thought she was smarter than everyone. Oh, heck. So, due to all of this, and I, I find it interesting to read that article mm-hmm. that was from the juror's perspective just by itself. It's very interestingly written. But due to all of this, and after 11 hours of deliberation over three days, Michelle, she was convicted of first-degree murder and arson with mercy. So she was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole for the murder charge mm-hmm. um, and parole after 15 years, and then 20 years with the possibility of parole for the arson charge, and she's serving them consecutive or overlapping what's that word is it consecutively no no consecutive would be would back be, to back yeah. so she's pretty much serving them both at the same at time. the same time <sighs> so but so that means with the 15 and five but she will be eligible for parole around 2027 because they're taking the 15 and the five years mm-hmm. that um and so she could get out but she's currently serving her sentence in point pleasant And the juror stated that giving Michelle life without mercy seemed a little too easy because, and this is from the juror's perspective, now she has to wonder if she will get out. Mm -hmm. And this also gives her a chance to reconcile with her kids if they want the opportunity. But either way, this was a really horrible crime committed for basically no reason. Yeah. Like, I just, I mean, it could have been for the insurance policy, could I be don't just because she was having an affair. But she, the thing is, that they divorce. I I mean, they divorce their their yeah, other he, people for them. Here's the thing: they did, but guess what came into play now? He had started this big medical supply I mean, true. company and stuff. So she was like, I don't really want to. Yeah, I don't know. That's how I would look at. It. I, yeah, that's woo. Yeah. So Sheesh. anyway, that's my my case. Um. Yeah. So one of the people I went to school with. They had come to Preston County later, but they were in Morgantown, and that Michelle was their cheerleading coach. Oh, my gosh. That would be so creepy to pull Denise one day and be like, oh, snap. Well, I mean, the gym teacher murdered his girlfriend in our county, so. Anyway. Um, Yeah, that's it. Yay. Cool. You want to do your cold case? Yep. I want to do my cold case. (laughs) Great. for my cold case the charlie project um whoop whoop go donate to them donate 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 they actually have a donate button at the top of their page so go donate and they actually had posted a article about this person but they of course have the write-up on them so today's cold case is asia that's spelled a-s-h-a jaquila j-a-q I-L-L-A degree. So, Aisha resided with her family in an apartment on Oak Crest Street in Shelby, North Carolina in 2000. She was last seen inside her home at approximately approximately 2.30 a.m. on February 14, 2000. 
Aisha's father went to sleep at that time and told authorities that his daughter was asleep in her bed when he checked on her. Aisha shared a room with her older brother who stated that he heard noises during the early morning hours and assumed his sister was tossing in her sleep. Aisha's mother went into her room at approximately 6.30 a.m. to wake her children for school and discovered Aisha was not in her bed. The family immediately summoned authorities and an extensive search of the surrounding area was initialized with no result. Aisha has never been heard from again. Two truck drivers reported seeing her walking south on Highway 18 north of Shelby between 3.30 and 4.15 a.m., Aisha was apparently near the intersection of Highway 180 at the time, about a mile from her home. At this point, she ended up leaving the highway and walked off into the darkness, and it was the last confirmed sighting of her. Aisha might have been sighted getting into a distinctive dark green early 1970s model car on the night where she was last seen. The vehicle, which had rust around the wheels, is thought to have either been a Lincoln Mark IV or a Ford Thunderbird. Photos of similar cars are posted with this case summary on the Charlie Project. So, investigators believe that Aisha left her residence of her own accord. She is described as being quiet, a shy person, and a good student with a happy home life. And her reasons for leaving aren't clear. Aisha's basketball team lost a game, which was their first loss in the season the day before her disappearance. Her family said that she was upset over the loss, but she had calmed down within a few hours. Aisha's fourth grade class at Falston Elementary School read the book The Whipping Boy by Sid Fleshman in February 2000. And this book actually centers around the story of a prince and a commoner child who receives lashes on the royal child's behalf. The children proceed to run away, and the book details their adventures. Both boys return safely to the kingdom at the story's end. And it's not known if the book actually served as a catalyst for Aisha's disappearance. Mm -hmm. Aisha's black book bag and black Tweety Bird purse were missing from her room after her disappearance. Along with a pair of blue jeans with a red stripe, black sneakers, a long-sleeved white shirt with purple lettering, a red vest with black trim, black overalls with Tweety Bird on them, and a long-sleeved black and white shirt. All the doors to the house were found to be locked that morning when she was found to be missing. And Aisha kept her house key in the book bag that she had. Aisha's pencil, marker, and Mickey Mouse hair bow were discovered on the ground in the doorway of a tool shed at Turner's Upholstery on Highway 18 on February 17, 2000. Three days after her disappearance, her belongings were found near the stretch of road where Aisha was last seen walking in the early morning hours of February 14th. Um, a search of the area failed to produce additional evidence, and the items were discovered more than one mile from where Aisha lived. A contractor ended up recovering Aisha's book bag, which has her name and telephone number written on it, buried off of Highway 18 in August of 2001. And that was eight months after she disappeared. This is not good. No. The item had been double-wrapped in black plastic trash bags and was found more than 26 miles from her family's home in a different direction from where she had been seen walking. Uh, nearby, some animal bones and a pair of men's khaki pants were found. The bag was sent into a federal lab for testing, but citing the pending investigation, authorities never released the results. Um, unconfirmed reports state the bag contained Ash's name on a piece of paper, as well as clothing and a pencil case. 
Um, in October of 2001, a plastic trash bag similar to one that Aisha's book bag was wrapped in was found. The bag was sent to a police lab for analysis. What was in the bag? It doesn't say. Okay. So, um, investigators announced that they considered Aisha's disappearance to be a ma- criminal matter and foul play was suspected after the book bag's discovery. The surrounding area was thoroughly searched afterwards, but additional evidence was not was reportedly not located. And so, the website ABC Eleven out of North Carolina, yeah, ABC Eleven Eyewitness News out of Raleigh, Durham. Raleigh, North Carolina, actually posted a story on the 20th anniversary of her disappearance, so on Valentine's Day, and I'll read from it. Aisha's mother is quoted in this article as saying, after 20 years, I still believe my daughter's alive. I do not believe she is dead, and I know someone knows something. I'm not crazy enough to think that a nine-year-old can disappear into thin air without somebody knowing something. So, FBI investigators believe that someone in the Cleveland County community has information that could help them unlock the case, hence is why they were trying to do, like, a reboot on it on Valentine's Day of this year. And Cleveland County Sheriff's Office Detective Tim Adams came out of retirement in 2014 to lead the office's probe into the case. So, he'd retired by that point, but he came back out and was like, no, let's get this solved. Um, In 2015, the Sheriff's Office, the FBI, and the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation teamed up to re-examine the case, which generated more than 350 new leads, including 45 just within the past year alone. So, in 2016, the FBI said they had a new lead, and that's when they got the lead about the car, the dark green, either... Lincoln Continental or Ford Thunderbird that Aisha may have gotten into. They said that they encourage anybody out there if they have any information, no matter how small or minor it may seem, it may be extremely crucial to further us getting one step closer to Aisha. And that was according to Special Agent Michael Gregory with the FBI, and he's actually the lead for the case now with the FBI. There's a total of... A $45,000 reward being offered in regards to information leading to an arrest in this case. So, Aisha, let me do a rundown of what she looks like when she was missing. Um, at the time of her disappearance, Aisha was 9 years old. She was four foot six, 60 pounds. She is an African-American female, black hair, brown eyes. Um, at the time, she styled her hair in pigtails. Currently, she would be 29 years old. And if you go to the Charlie Project, and of course I'll post a picture of her, um, Charlie Project has an actual like age progression photo of mm-hmm. what they think she may look like today. So whenever I post these, I'll include what she looked like at the time of her disappearance plus that age progression photo. So, um, But yes, that is Aisha Jaquila Degree. Went missing from Shelby, North Carolina on Valentine's Day in 2000. And hopefully... Since they have started to bring this case back up, they can get some more leads and get her found. So, yay. Anywho, now that it's almost 10 o'clock at night, guess what time it is? It's Rex and Rex and Rex What is your recommendation for the week? Um, My recommendation is to go ahead and start 
planning a garden if you want to do that because it's never too early to start planning. I need to not grow things in pots this year because it didn't go very well. So <laughs> that's my recommendation. I'm growing a garden, hopefully, yes. and hopefully getting chickens because I'm that country girl. So you're like, no, no chickens. See, so, so Kirsten, you wouldn't uh, chickens hit for me if I was going to <laughs> Didn't I tell that story on the podcast? Yes, you did. <laughs> Yeah, go back and I don't even know. It was probably like episode two or three. I chicken sat for people. It did not go well. And I have not been asked to chicken sit again, and they've gone out of town. So It's okay. What's your recommendation? So, so my recommendation today is a new pot. Well, it's, I don't know if it's really new per se, but it's a podcast I just found recently, and I've been binging, and I love. It's called At Pod Latcha. Um, it's these two gentlemen um, that basically just talk about things that are relevant to Appalachia in each episode. They did an episode on Appalachian stereotypes. There's another episode that I just listened or I'm currently listening to. It's called Canary in a Code Mine. It talks about how there's this big push um, to try to get miners to go from mining to coding mm-hmm. and, you know, about all that. But um, they have some really good episodes. It's Chuck and Big John. They actually both went to law school, but they do make note to say don't go to them for law advice because they're not lawyers. That's their wives that are the lawyers. So if you need law advice, go to their wives, not to them. But they're really great, really funny, down to earth. They're really cool. They're from the Parkersburg area. And I think one of them still lives in Parkersburg. The other lives out of state currently. Mm -hmm. So they have to, like, record, like, I guess via Skype or something. But... They do really interesting topics. I love it, and I would love to uh, maybe, you know, if they do another Appalachian Stereotypes Type 2, get in on that discussion with them, because I can go for days and days on that. So. Yeah, for sure. But that is uh, my recommendation this week. So, I think my Unisom has kicked in at this point, and I'm like, hence why I'm like stumbling over my words. So, um, I guess that means we're done for the night. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening. We appreciate y'all. Be kind. Bye, Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Appalachian Crime Trail Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe if you enjoyed our episode. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay kind and stay safe, y'all.